Okay, here we go. And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, for the first time in 2021, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very, very special guest, John Clute, on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're, we're, we're sort of revisiting Camden Town again, and I was thinking, John, that uh, up until last year, that was one of the central locations anybody visiting in England would want to stop by at the Clute's flat. And that that kind of central social function that you've had for decades now must have just evaporated. Yeah, I've got all these oyster cards that nobody's using. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we should open up, apart from just saying hello, is to say, how are you? How are you and Judith and everybody uh, coping with this really strange time that we're in? It's it's really, really very strange kind of thing because you don't know what kind of a breath it is that you're holding. You know you're holding your breath. You, you know you know that the world is sitting around you, and you know very very well that um, you know like sharks, we got to do what we do as human beings are kind of like sink, and it's hard really to tell what part of us is not exactly staying afloat. I know I'm not entirely. I'm not. I find I find as I was mentioning you, to you earlier, the fact that I hardly ever talk to anybody except to Liz on the phone and to Judith here and there. Um, I don't talk to anybody at all, and there's part of the, the, you know, the the human sensorium that does actually require some illusion of speech. I remember um, this is a sort of off off pissed, I guess, a bit. I remember uh, a few years ago they closed all the streets down in Piccadilly, and they opened up a series of Piccadilly circuses. It was a, an event for twelve hours or something, and they had performances, etc. And everybody was, it was November. It was about as dark as it is now here in January. And I was there. Everybody was dressed in the same color, dark colors with hats because it wasn't a very nice weather. And I was looking around and all of a sudden I got this epiphany as though I were a Martian looking at this and not being able to understand the thing because my Martian didn't know how to read faces. The only thing you could see was this horizontal band of white, which was this astonishing communal eloquence of faces interacting, mouths opening and shutting, mm. eyes opening and shutting, people shifting around, huge amount of communi- communication matrix of inconceivable density, which we just don't think about at all unless it's brought to our attention. Well, something like that is not happening to any of us, for any of us, and it hasn't for almost a year. So there you go. That's my, that's my take. So you're finding it a, a more science fictional time to li- live in than you ever expected? Uh, science fiction, insofar as science fiction is the <laughs> true representation of the world, yeah, it's science fictional, except, of course, it's not much like most fiction stories we've read over the last half century of our, of our um, reading experience. A little bit more like maybe some of the scientific romances that are published between World War One and World War Two in the UK. I've been focusing more and more on them as I revise entries and find new people to write about. Finding most of them were um, um, veterans of World War One. I. I think we have listed them. I've done this with Edward James, who did a site on this. I think there are now more right. than hundred mm-hmm. authors in the encyclopedia who survived combat in World War One, and the amount of shaping of their their sense of things uh, is massively um, visible if you just have a blink and epiphany and notice it. And that the scientific romances of of the 20s and 30s, very, very many of them show worlds which are astonishingly more like this world than the kind of techno-cultic worlds that were being created from Gerns back on in America. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a well, this sort of... Go ahead, Gary. Yeah, I was going to say that I, I know that uh, our our mutual friend Brian Stableford had written his history of the scientific romance, yeah. in which he made a very persuasive argument that what was going on in England in the 30s mm-hmm. was very much unrelated to the kind of standard history of science fiction that American writers would write. I mean, as far as as far as Lester Del Rey or James Gunn were concerned, the 30s was pulp stories, 
and and you were looking at what Stapleton and S. Fowler Wright and all kinds of writers who sometimes a whole got range of writers that up by most of us don't recognize the 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 easiest thing to do for um, as it were clogging that I think is now the entry on scientific romance and Encyclopedia of Science Fiction because that's pretty well up to date and it it lists a lot of people that um, Brian didn't list in 1985 in his first edition and even more than he has listed in the in the in the one published a few years ago in four terribly edited but very informative volumes. So yeah, um, the, sorry, I was um, going to say, what is it in those thirties disasters? Because I'm thinking of uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the novels like Fowler writes the Deluge, for example. Mm-hmm. What do you see in those novels that that seems more uh, consistent with with today's world than the future of the pulp uh, technocrats? Uh, okay. Scientific romances in the 20s and 30s. This is off the top of the head because I just had that intuition five minutes ago. Um, but scientific <laughs> romances in the 20s and 30s, they often have a default presumption of a world whose energies have inherently been damaged beyond retrieval by a terrible catastrophe, implied or actual. And as I said, I always tend to see um, the experience of World War One as manifestly deployed in the scientific romances of many of the authors under that term. So it's a world whose energies have been are no longer there's no longer a default assumption that the energy of Homo sapiens as a species as individuals is going to manifest itself in heroes in Inventors who don't invent pyrrhic um, tools, pyrrhic weapons, or in a culture mm-hmm. that will not replicate the devastation that these people lived through and which they see around them, and which those of us who did not live through that devastation vicariously think must have been what Virginia Woolf described as the end of end of candlelight civilization as we know it, or whatever it is she said. I have a, that I have. <laughs> That there was a new dawn, a morning, but it wasn't. Well, I, <laughs> the um, course, there there are two things that come to mind: the World War One uh, influence, which of course was it was enormously impressive when Edward James not only has the website but put together that wonderful display at at Lancon a couple of a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I wonder if it's possible to over to over interpret uh, World War One. There is, I doubt if you've seen it because I haven't seen. I have not seen all of it. There's a truly uninteresting movie called Tolkien, uh, which purports to be uh, a, a, a bio- biopic about the Tolkien, which clearly just makes a one-to-one equivalent between everything he saw on the battlefield and Sauron. It's uh, it, it, it's the most simple-minded literary criticism I've ever seen in film, and and that's there's no cool. doubt that he was that's in awesome, it. Of course, yeah. Absolutely, he, we we know he was affected. We know that uh, that there was a there was a, um, a generic interaction between his experiences there and what he wrote. But he might have written that something like that in any case. And we don't we, we can't we can't make that kind of a generalization. It's very mechanical. But I was just looking at my entry because I'm so sophisticated, and I can go to different pages on this magic screen which seemed to have entered my house 20 years ago now i'm understanding <laughs> I, I see that um the scientific romance entry um there are well over 200 incoming um entries that and entries that actually use the term scientific romance in the encyclopedia and most of those are authors um the the number of authors who had some kind of as it were communal shared assumption is probably um um, very one, very large, and two, does not require a mechanical unpacking. I was in the trenches, therefore I wrote about. Um, therefore, I I wrote about um, that, that um, Bag's End, which we understand is Tolkien's term for cul-de-sac, but he wouldn't use French because he was so English. I think I'm getting off track there. Well, no, but you're, you're, <laughs> you're raising an issue which is is which is broader than 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 science fiction, also because. Uh, I was thinking back uh, to the Encyclopedia of Fantasy. We talk about Tolkien. Obviously, we're no. not talking about science fiction. No. If you if you move into areas like horror fiction, one of the classics, and I know you and John, you and I have talked about this before, even though I don't think it's in print anywhere. 
is a novel, a short novel called The Cross of Carl by Walter Owen. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a classic horror story, uh, which always struck me as being a, a visceral response to, to the First World War. I think it's, it's, it, it seems to me, and it is not in print right now, I think, I think you're right. I, I, it seemed to me, and it's a very fast read, and it should be in print somewhere for anybody to just glance at it. I think, you're, I think you are right about that. It's the most, the most extraordinarily vivid um, representation of, the, of what you might think of as was the dissipated, the paraphrastic um, world created by scientific romance writers subsequent to the war. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, written, it, the claim is, as you remember, Gary, is he claims he wrote it actually in 1917. It wasn't published until 3031. Yeah. Um, and it feels as though he had. But this goes into something which is not so much sidebar, but for me enters a whole new territory, which is my understanding of horror, which I use, I like to use the word terror. It feels more like there, there is some body horror in it, but it is more like terror. The, mm. The, the the novel is is terror as a recognition of the malice of the world is embodied in that novelette um, more superbly than one can imagine anywhere else. And I think I probably have referred to it two or three times in books and pieces I've written about terror. Yes, I, I in the darkening garden. In the darkening garden, yeah. And I think I think elsewhere I. Re- I repeat these things all the time. I got a very, very bad memory or card index or indexing for um, um, not repeating myself. But I, but Walter Owen, yes, he's highly, highly recommended to those of us who have not run across him. There's an entry in the encyclopedia which will give some kind of cue as to where to find his books. There are two or three books, but this is the only one of real significance. So, scientific romances. Um, it's it's not what we were beginning to talk about, but I think it's I think it is a it is interesting to see how different um, the the world of as it were arguable fantastica fantastica set in worlds which are arguable um, differed in 1920 and 1930 where they were where there was a mature sequence of novels. Clearly, many of these authors who were not fans of each other because fandom didn't exist. But clearly, these authors either knew each other personally or knew each other's works. There, much, much more work can be done on the on the associations among these various texts, and we can't get into the text because it'll take an hour just to read the damn list. Uh, the scientific romance. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, there was a uh, again. I think you're describing a community which, in the United States, would look a lot like fandom, but it was a much it seemed to be smaller and more literary community than. Than what was going on in the states at the yeah I don't think as I don't, far as I could tell I don't think you can actually identify groups of people who read scientific romances the term wasn't particularly widely um, used or more widely used than science fiction was until the thirties I don't think you'd be able to um, I don't think you know this is something for examination I don't think you're going to find groups of people who read these novels as though um, they were a coherent group who knew each other as though the novels themselves right. knew that they were doing the same thing. As I was saying, I think I think the novelists were reading each other. There, there are too many similarities. Um, Wellesian um, scientific romances of that time, not the not the great ones around 1900, um, are part of a conversation that he was by no means the dominant voice in. So a scientific romance... And another difference. Uh, a scientific romance. I mean, I'm just looking at the entry. Um, I'm, I would recommend for those of us who find any of this interesting because it's it's still a relatively new territory. Brian Stimford basically made it up that these all these things called scientific romances were called scientific romances for a reason. And the um, and there are ways in which you can understand what they are and how they differ. That they have long evolutionary perspectives. They have meditative protagonists who brood upon the world. The narrators are reactive rather than proactive. Um, there is a tendency for a total absence of penetratable frontier, which obviously distinguishes them very radically from American science. From American uh, stuff. Yeah. There, there are the ra- narratives in which there's something invented. Um, the invention is, tends to be used in a negative sense, negative fashion, as blackmail to keep people from killing each other rather than leading them 
across the frontier into a, into a brave new world. Um, there is a there is a sense that most of the answers, most of the political, religious, um, uh, philosophical answers that we believed in, no longer operate. This is very very different from American science fiction, which doesn't actually usually address whether or not our philosophy, our religion, our our understanding of the feeling of life and of the sanctity of family were actually artifacts that had been disqualified. So it's a and there's well, all another different. Obviously, yeah, is that, uh, I was going to say that the this conversation you're describing uh, and, and as as Stableford describes it in his book, the, the scientific romance conversation was among novelists writing novels. What was going on in the United States were short fiction writers uh, sure. writing monthly uh, stories. You used the term uh, in your Telluride speech. You used the term uh, describing American science fiction of this uh, period as techno occultism, which I think is a wonderful term. But I'd like you to unpack it a bit. Well, I'm it was off the top of my head, and I think it borrowed from somebody who has written about it in the past. I think I think various people have written about it. And when I'm writing uh, something onto Facebook, I don't think I should be put to jail for not knowing what I'm talking about. Uh, what I, <laughs> on the other hand, right here, if we, you know, on, on this podcast, if we don't know what we're talking about, we we should suffer the consequences, shouldn't we? <laughs> well, still, we should. Island over there in Australia and America, those lands of the free and the non-COVID-ridden, whatever. Um, Techno-occultism is the as it were, the, the will to believe that technological answers are not only efficacious, but that somehow or other they have a numinousness about them, that they somehow other, mm-hmm. they are themselves transformed. They're, they're eidolons of a, of, of, a, of a redeemed new life. And I think that using the term like that loosely on Facebook um, is, is within the limits of the permissible. What do you think? Of course. But I mean, it, it, it's the point that's interesting, though. It's like the, you know, you're saying the talk was called Those Who Don't Understand Science Fiction Are Contempt to Repeat It, right? And you're talking about how yeah. science fiction in the 50s was completely overwhelmed by this sense of technolo- technological possibility, technological idealism, techno-occultism, right? So no. then that comes yeah. around to this idea, well... Yeah. Sorry, go yeah. on. I'm interrupting. Don't interrupt. No, no, you, please. Yeah. Okay, I am. All I was going to say is, Okay, I think we've got a half second yeah. gap here because you're in the wrong part of the world. Go on. <laughs> I was just, all I was going to say was that where does that lead us to now if we're going to avoid techno-occultism? How does science fiction avoid repeating itself and being uh, condemned to not move forward? You know, that is a, that is a rather larger question than I thought we were going to talk about because I don't I don't I don't I what what. I think at the moment, and it may just be because of my venerable age and my year of isolation and having read too many books that are not satisfactory to me in terms of their relationship to the world, what I begin, you know, it's a dreadful kind of drought. Drought, sorry, it is a drought. It's a doubt as well. Um, This drought-like doubt is that somehow or other, um, insofar as we, Homo sapiens, are actants within our stories, our stories are no longer vis-a-vis the world really storyable. We don't, we're not telling the world anymore. And maybe the world has, maybe the planet, maybe the point at which we've reached as a predatory species have made it impossible really, or unlikely really, or implausible for somebody who is my age or yours almost gary um to actually envisage how do you tell us how do you tell a story how do you tell a planetary story that is actually a story that engages us if it is not exactly the same story of you know samples of destruction samples of of terminus samples of of the end of things i don't know how to do it i'm i'm at an impasse I think what we think, well, I think I think we should do, of course, is attempt to understand how, as storytellers and as critics of storytellers, uh, we have not entirely understood how awry we had become as mentors, as campfire guides to the future or even to the present. 
I think one of the issues, and it may be in some bizarre way analogous to your your point about uh, about British writers in, in the First World War, yeah. is that by now we're in a generation of science fiction writers and readers who have seen uh, we have seen the future that the forties and fifties told us about, and it hasn't done anything that we were promised. It not only has given us the technology we were promised, it hasn't liberated us, it has not made us more humane or more democratic. So we're far enough along in the history of science fiction now to realize that the future didn't work. And the question is, what to <laughs> do with that? Um, I, think, I think, as I said, that the, one of the things we can do is sort of ramble over the ways in which it didn't work and doesn't work and see whether there are chinks of light. Yes, it's 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 mm-hmm. very it's very clear that the now somebody on my um, on my Facebook said something about what about X, what about Y, what about Cornbluth, Pole, um, Sheckley, Bester, and of course there are there were yeah. voices, and um, maybe we can be forgiven for not as we're um, entering into the nature of their counter activity, how they were received, etc. Because the overall epithet seems to have been as we're describing it now. So how how did it go wrong? What was what was what were the underlying reasons for a literature dominantly an American literature? What are the reasons it did not describe it did not describe the future with any any predictive accuracy at all? Uh, we we have to think that it was not a technological thing. We have to think that there, that there were mindsets which would which led us to accept certain things and to ignore other things. We can't. Mm-hmm. We cannot think that the failure of science fiction to predict 2021 is our failure to predict a particular technological device or or political movement. It's it has to be more interesting than that. But we can go over very quickly. You know, there are there are there are comical ways. In which, in which um, science fiction is um, term I've also been using is Homo sapiens compliant, and maybe that's one mm-hmm. of the ways of getting an, an, getting an understanding of the precariousness of certain kinds of Homo sapiens compliant world stories on a fragile planet that was moving very quickly and according to dynamics that to our eyes and ears and minds 50 years ago were so fractal we couldn't even perceive. So there are ways in which that old science fiction by generating stories that were were compliant with a sense of empowerment, a sense that um, there could be answers to specific questions which did not lead to a thousand flowers blooming of unintended consequence. Um, there may it may be enjoyable at least to work out what not to repeat, which is what the old, what the, what that sl- sl- um, slogan was, which was the title I gave to an address in 2017 in Telluride, Colorado, officially opening a library of my books, which has now arrived in its entirety at this, at the site as of the day, day before yesterday. Wonderful. Um, the, 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 the premise was of course, to describe initially why a library, an archive library, can help teach us certain things. Not teach us what to do, but maybe what not to do. Maybe that's one of the problems with science fiction of years ago, that it was that it thought it was it was altogether too easily convinced that telling people what to do worked. Mm-hmm. It did not. It, but then does that mean that the problem... Another way of saying there are no unintended consequences, we need to pay attention. Well, I think the, the, the idea of science, the, the optimistic, the techno-optimism, was always based on the assumption that doing something is better than doing nothing, and doing something is always an extension of what we have previously done. So, for example, the great myth of, of science fiction for the last century has been Continual outward expansion. There was even a phrase. There was a there was a John Wyndham book mm-hmm. called the out the outward urge or something like that. And, yeah, and, and that became a myth until, until it it clearly did not happen. And and when it did happen, didn't work in the way we expected it. So now, for example, you have a whole generation of generation starship stories, primarily by Kim Stanley Robinson, but by others as well, demonstrating that this 
Generation Starship is an extraordinarily naive idea. Uh-huh. Um, Generation Star. I have not. I've not read his Generation. Kim um, Stan's um, Generation Starship novel, so I'm. I'm not intimately aware with um, the line of his analysis. What? What in? Well, what, in it's, 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 what in substance does he say? How does he say? His um, principal argument in Aurora uh, is that uh, there are so many variables that over a period of time you spend generations getting to a planet which may not be habitable, and. And the whole notion of, of escaping the Earth because the Earth is not salvageable is not a viable option. In other words, his argument is essentially that you can't use a generation starship as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, you have to deal with what happens on Earth. So to some extent, he wrote that as a critique of, uh, of the whole concept. But other authors have shown how generation starships can lead to repressive, fascistic governments to... Uh, in other words, it's... It's it, it's a very useful concept, but it's not useful in in the way that uh, people might have thought it was useful 50 years ago. Although now that I think about it, even early generation starship novels like Brian Aldiss's mm-hmm. Nonstop were very critical of the idea, weren't they? Yeah, I was just going to say something like that. Um, I think you can probably detect a, a break here, um, horizontal break, as it were. Um, novels and set in galactic environments, space opera environments in which generation starships were used to establish the um, arena um they they seem to work okay but it's very hard to think of a of a novel set in a generation starship which works okay um that's partly because stories always look for the bad news we don't have stories are not about good news and and therefore you set in a generation starship it's all too easy to find various ways in which the artifact is is non-viable but they were certainly mm-hmm. very useful and you know i have a kind of a mixed feeling about about the about the devices of science fiction over the last 50 years because you know we can list them and we know that they're nonsense you know faster than light travel mm-hmm. time travel whatever mm-hmm. other worlds time abysses which um unpack um marvels for us to feast upon and forerunners and transcendence, um, the the idea that somehow or other we are we are moving more and more to transcending our human condition before we've even begun to sort out what the human condition is, is one of the amusing defaults of science fiction and amusing for those who like transcendental stuff because it makes the stories immensely easy to read. It makes it it's it's. Mm-hmm. Not it. That's why we can read um, old science fiction novels if they're not too badly written, and re-inhabit um, a world of enablement. All these enablements—they are—they are devices which we have great pleasure in in occupying and in, in making use of in our imaginations. But if there's any kind of slippage, any kind of slippage in the assumption that these devices are models of how we need to tell stories about the world itself, then we're in trouble. Um, the um, the idea that you know the the the, the, the Homo sapiens compliant um, um, forms of story. Obviously, those are Homo sapiens compliant in a sense because they're all there for us. All those devices, but the notion of of artificial intelligences as being not immensely powerful machines, but Somehow or other, aspirations after human consciousness clog the pages of science fiction, magazines, and novels. We know that very well. They're full of mm-hmm. conscious AIs, not wanted on the journey, and the journey is not going to be a journey into the other parts of this universe that is actually undertaken by us. It's going to be undertaken by non-conscious trillion-fold networks of AIs. Is it not? I'm asking you. And that's... Oh, no. <laughs> Jonathan? Yes. No, I, th- I think you're right. In fact, I think if you look at the science fiction that's being written right now, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it's coming to terms with, a chunk of it. It's looking at uh, how we're not cor- we can't be corporally present. We're going to be present through avatars and drones and robots, whatever else, because of the practicalities and because so much of the technology, so much of the storyable technology that we've looked at in the last century of the modern science fiction story really isn't a practical form of thing uh, of of 
thing at all. When you try and depict how our world is actually going to unfold in the coming 50 years, and if we're going to attempt any of the things that science fiction has talked about us doing, I mean, Stan Robinson, to some degree, to my mind, and Aurora argues against the very logic of off-world travel in any way as being a practical venture when what we should be doing is looking at the planet we're living on, and that makes sense to me. But when you're trying to construct science fiction stories, you're trying to construct uh, them against that, if you want, like the arena of space and being off off planet, and you just can't see how that's going to work. And that's why you get, you know, book after this year particularly, I noticed, and I don't know if it's some weird coincidence with COVID and with everybody being locked in, mm-hmm. but we get story after story after story about this very thing, about us being represented by another in the universe because we can't be in it ourselves. And the question right. arises then, uh, what is our relevance to that kind of a universe? There's a, there's a novel, uh, what I think, this is, this is a minority opinion, I think, I think C.S. Lewis's best novel, as a novel, that is something made up of paragraphs and characters, is, is called Till We Have Faces, and it's one of his mythological mm. But the question he asks in that is, how can we meet the gods face to face until we have faces? And I always thought that applied in some ways to our versions of, of post-humanity and AI and that sort of thing. How do we know what it means to be post-human when we have not yet figured out what it means to be human? Okay. Okay. I think we all, I think we've all now, all three of us have said almost exactly that, that thing. And that thing is, is very, very central. Um, it does strike me that even, Speaking about avatars and, and the various, I don't, I've not read much science fiction the last year, so I may be a little bit behind here. But the the sense that our representatives will be speaking in our voices, that we will that we will manifest ourselves through avatars, etc., is is um, pleasurable and may occur. But the underlying um, fact does seem to be the case that. Um, the exploration of space, the occupation and exploitation of other parts of this galaxy will be machine-driven. And that there is kind of, is there a need for an avatar to be butting in? Is there a need, there's certainly not a need or a real possibility for a physical being to be trundling about the various planets, doing mining, doing exploration, doing science, um, Settling, settling the universe into a, into a shape it's, that will not happen. We don't think it's going to happen. We're too expensive. We're efficient. We're in. We're mm-hmm. terribly expensive. We die. We have quarrels. Generation starships are, as we said, a perfect, perfect as we're working model of how it is impossible for us to be allowed out of the kennel. So we're not going to be. Our own, our own inventions are going to. Um, make this impossible because there's no room for us. We can't af- we can't afford to do it, even with 3D machines. And that, which is, of course, is another um, form of Homo sapiens compliance that we pretend they don't exist. They pre- pretend that they will not be um, creating the spaceships for each other that we have um, launched upon the universe. I believe um, NASA is already um, attempting to design a 3D machine printed um, ship that can repair itself on Mars if it breaks. Am I off track here? That sounds plausible. No, I don't think you're off track at all. But actually, what I was going to ask you, that's mm. off exactly what you're saying, I think, is this. What I was going to say is that I know you've said that you're not reading in the last 12 months that much new science fiction, but still you may have noticed that there's been a strong trend in the science fiction that's coming out to talk a lot more, not about, in practical ways, uh, humanity's physical presence mm. in the at greater universe at large, but more about the nature of humanity, something that science comes back to again. There's a lot of talk about gender, about race, about other things, and there's been lots of great advice to it. But do you think, do you, do you think it's reasonable to suspect that this is on some level science fiction looking for and struggling to find a way forward that gets, you know, in terms of creating storyable uh, spaces, mm-hmm. uh, that it can occupy, given that the, what appeared to be in the 20th century, the primary mission of science fiction, putting humans in space, is not as achievable or realistic or plausible as it uh, once was. Yeah, I, I didn't interject a certain amount of passion into this as well. Um, my sense, which is a fairly remote sense, because I'm not reading as much. I can't. My eyes aren't as strong as they used to be, and my patience is um, feeble. But 
the reading I'm doing and the understanding I have is that much of the expansion of the range of address of that which we call science fiction, which I would expand and call science fiction as an inhabitant in the gearing of Fantastica, is been driven by a repudiation of first world science. And that first world fiction, rightly or wrongly, has been identified with patriarchy, with um, um, various forms of unconscious or conscious sexism, racism, imperialism, um, a tolerance of slavery, um, bar the name, that have aroused um, repugnance and rage and provided openings for a variety of perspectives, whether or not this is the same as an awareness that the world that we are living in or will will be living in needs to be described in these terms. I happen to think that they're correct, but I think it's I think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a dis- worldwide discovery of greater relevance. I think I think originally it was more localized passions, more localized needs to um, um, revise the the dominant episteme story. Most people are not that aware of the consequences in the planet of what they of what they write in the morning. Sorry, I interrupted somebody there. I think. No, no, no. Let, let, let me ask you this: You've been reading science fiction for most of your life, thinking about the science fiction that you have been reading that entire time, and saying many, many very intelligent things about it. Well, that was a go. As we sit here in this weird. That is 2021. And we talk about whether <coughs> the mission that science fiction had still fit or it has. It's, it seems almost trite to ask it, but do you still think there's a space for science fiction as we understand it in storytelling at the moment? Or is that mission petering out to some degree? I think um, you've asked that and suggested exactly that a couple of times over the last 20 minutes or so. And it's 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 pretty- Well, maybe so. Um, I think, I think insofar as the stories that we are familiar with and the forms we've um, constructed to tell those stories in is concerned, that it's, it's pretty obvious that science fiction as we have understood it is not, no longer has the self-confidence, rightly, to describe itself as advocating a livable future. And that we don't, I think... Mm-hmm. Um, given my own reading and given the reading of so many of the stories that um, I read about in Locus, Blessed Be the Name, etc., I don't think a lot of the stories that we are reading have retained anything like that assurance about about the nature of the potential fit between what they are, the world that they are creating, and an actual deliverable, achievable, livable world. I'm I get. A stronger and stronger feeling and gary you read a huge amount of novels and jonathan you read more oh. stories than exist um i could easily easily be as it were a mumpsimus um tracking along in the wake of the new but it, i don't have i have a sense of the science that the science fiction i read the most enjoyable science fiction i read is told consciously as um as it were alternate world narratives in a loose sense, that they're consciously exercises, consciously um, set up to um, be read by people who know what they are doing, which is not what they used to do, but which is sometimes a facsimile of what they used to do. I love, say, Alistair Reynolds. And there are mm-hmm. some, of his, some of his um, modeling is as close to what we might extrapolate a a um, human-inhabited but not human-dominated um, corner of the galaxy. Um, if everything goes well, he eschews most of the um, most of the devices that I was iterating earlier. Uh, he describes worlds, um, megastructures. I think megastructures the, is the is the way of the future. Um, that megastructures that are that are the size of solar systems in which. We, which we inhabit, but which are we are conspicuously not the secret masters or visible masters of. I think it is to my to my reading really enjoyable science fiction, space operas, and stories of that are less, as it were, um, 
vividly wide screen are all the more enjoyable if the world that science fiction used to take dead seriously is now seen as a playground. I think that's exactly right. You used the term exercises earlier, um, which, uh, I, which I think is part of what goes on with this. So the space opera, 20, was it 20 years ago now, we talked about the new space opera. Yeah. Uh, and since then, there's a new, new space opera and the space opera renaissance. And this sort of space opera is now a, a, a performative thing. It's, 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 it's one of the exercises that you go through to show that you know uh, the materials and, and, and history of science fiction. And a lot of it uh, might be um, simply gestural in the sense that, um, in the sense you write a locked room murder mystery to show that you know how to do this, you know what the, what the terms are. And then you use that as, as a jumping off point for, a, for what you really want to say, which is, which is not necessarily a celebration of the same values that the space operas of 80 years ago celebrated. I, th- I think I think I think we're saying fair, fairly close to the same kind of thing, and it certainly it certainly enables us. It certainly enables me to to take some kind of unannealed un- pleasure in what I read. If I know if I know that it is a celebration of of a of a playground that used to be um, used, that used to be what we thought was the world. I'm I'm mm. very I'm very happy to be there. I'm very happy to happy to assume that this is is helps celebrate our, as it were, passing over of the Gurdon to the creatures we've made, to the networks we have constructed, which are, I think, in 2021, very very close to self sustaining and self growing. Um, so that so the this is the, this model of science fiction is a series of stories to keep. Homo sapiens happy while the work goes on is, I think, probably one of the one of the one of the routes forward. That, and I would add the uh, the the playground. I like the playground metaphor well, because one of the things that I think when contemporary science fiction writers revisit familiar tropes and plot forms and that sort of thing sure. is is recreating the playground, but showing that the playground now has room for a much more diverse variety of characters and people and, and, and gender attitudes and nationalities and, uh, and, and so forth and so on. So, so to some extent, it's, it's, it's returning to that playground of the 40s and 50s and saying more people are welcome than were then. Yeah, so there is a, there is a double thing. It's a richer environment. It's a more interesting environment. It avoids the kinds of blindnesses about the world that we have to blind ourselves to when we read old science fiction, while at the same time, I think, recognizes tacitly or not that that this that we are these stories are helping us train ourselves to a different world as well. And I I won't go on again about what I think that world is, except that I think it's I think that's the world we're gonna get if we survive at all. And that we are we are um, well, I think, uh, well, never mind. We don't want to go into about social media, do we? <laughs> well, it certainly does feel as though um, science fiction is lacking, potentially lacking courage when it comes to finding ways to try to occupy that livable future that you've been talking about and that we've talked around about. This idea that you know, maybe our own lack of confidence in the future is what's uh, poisoning the science fiction well as much as anything. Um, the 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 ultimate degree to which it is that the that this is that this is consequential uh, may be a matter of dispute, and we may discover as the years pass, may we live so long, um, the actual the actual kind of waiting as the 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 instrumental waiting of the stories we tell. My my suspicion is that the that the instrumentality of these stories is 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 not going to be anything like as easily understood to be to, to be veridical as as we once we once felt and that's and as i say i think that's i think that's okay i think it's i think i think part of the problem of reading of not reading science fiction is not understanding that in the end maybe we are not the ultimate masters of our fates and the fact that the masters have been created by us, are being created by us, 
that the systems we live in are now are now um, beyond our comprehension, but certainly not beyond our original making. That's that's a kind of a solace. You, uh, there's a sidebar. This all all this all this stuff. I think I talked about it in the Facebook tonight. The about the um, self-driving cars. Because, yeah. yeah, Because that's that's one of the that's that's a nice a nice capsule generation. Um, generalization one can make, or an example one can take about the about how things were not. We didn't quite get things right. Of course, we didn't understand the automobile from the beginning. Um, we never had a traffic jam. Remember, Gary, I was doing this um, quiz at one point, trying right. to find um, an actual story before about 1970 that actually had a traffic jam in it and didn't have much. <laughs> <of it>. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't get it. We didn't. We were. We were we were really slaves of the of the engine in our imagination. I remember Clifford C. Mack with his appalling suburbs, which we all escaped to, and it's <laughs> like the Aldrich family by a million escaping what he called the huddling places, which might have been um, what the Metropolitan Museum. God knows what he thought was a huddling place. All of all of that we didn't, we well, didn't get, get the We didn't we didn't get what but it was. And we don't want to start on the estate, do we? Because that, that would be another entire podcast of describing how we didn't understand consequences when we when we began to lay down the A thousand flowers Walmart shall bloom. But the your um, example of driving car the self driving car assumes that kind of a world. And they're still trying to design them. They they run them up and down abandoned abandoned airline air, airway air, airports. They, uh-huh. they, they, still, they still think and argue, or they pretend to think and argue, perhaps to keep us happy or un, or deluded, that self-driving cars will be autonomous um, entities, and that we will be able to take over at any point as the as the master of the of of the of the slave, which is driving us safely up and down on all these streets, and we and we know it's not going to be the case. We know that we know that we know that um, self-driving cars will not really ever exist except on um, abandoned runways. That it, or the, that it, but one of the things I think contemporary sorry, I, science fiction writers don't know that. I mean, to some extent, there's there was a classic sociological study 30 or 40 years ago, uh, I think it, by Herbert Muller called The Children of Frankenstein. He wasn't talking about science fiction, but he was talking about our assumption that technology will uh, will take care of itself in the long run. That's an assumption which science fiction characteristically questions, I think. I, I, I think you're right that the self-driving cars is the latest example of, of autonomous technology that probably won't work as we expect it to. But that particular example happens to coincide with uh, a major plot point in, uh, in Cory Doctorow's most recent novel, Attack Surface, in which he imagines self-driving cars to be uh, they can be taken over and hacked by the government to plow into crowds of protesters. They can be weaponized. I was just going to say that. Um, and that's, well, that's, there you go. But my point is, science fiction writer's job isn't to think about technology. It's to think about how technology will not work the way we expect it to. Yeah, that's why, that's, I think that the self-driving car has got a lot of legs, as it were, in terms of, 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 mm-hmm. of, 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 of <laughs> our, being able, our being able to model why um how we how we got these things wrong because it was it was built in to the world that we thought we were inhabiting that self-driving cars were a natural continuation of of the basically well Futurama if you like but when you get to mm-hmm. the modern um, um, autonomous or non-autonomous car I think I described the, that we operate them and they're 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 what I call petitionable apps and that I think is a better description of a self-driving car than anything else at the moment, because the they will be, as Corey was obviously um, um, taking up on, they will be integrated into immensely complex networks of of um, of communication that have, we have nothing to do with at all, and they will, as Corey probably says, be able to. Um, Take us to the hospital if they think if they think that we have drunk too much. They certainly will not allow mm. us to get over. They will take us to the police station if we have committed offence. They will 
They will they will take us where they think we need to go if there is an emergency. They will do all of these things, and, and that's the very very beginning of it. And there's no and there's no out. It's the, they can't operate unless they are unless they are part of an inconceivably rich matrix. Yes, a kind of and, this, a, and, a, and a, the Oakleys, you know, the song without words, so that that. All we can hear is the trillion-fold vocalese of of the world that we are passenger. That's the self-driving car. I'm thinking of how <laughs> many, how, how many how many scenes in movies uh, of technology technology out of control in a way. How many scenes in movies have you seen where somebody is in the back seat of a car and all the locks go down immediately, and you realize you'll never get out of this car? Well. That's essentially what what you're describing. You're describing a technology which we believe we control, but which actually has already begun controlling us. Um, in crude form, the car that locks itself is is you know like it's 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 a good prolepsis. It's a very simple minded prolepsis because we're going to be locked in in a thousand ways, not one or two. But yeah, sure, they are they are they are they are good they are good predictions of I think of the world to come. Of course. Yeah, so here here we go. We are we if we if we do survive, we will we will survive telling ourselves stories in in the playground. We will drive to the to the um, the bookshop, which has been constructed so that we as human beings can feel that we are doing something meaningful by buying a physical book. But we will be taken there to the correct shop by the by the vocalese that um, governs our lives with four wheels. It's a good image. It's it's better than COVID. It is. <laughs> it's a little depressing, but yeah. Oh come on! You're you're just so you <laughs> not seen other people there in, in Western Australia that you that you that you think that there is to be lost on the part of somebody in London by being under the control of the trillion fold vocalese. I'm making up. I'm making use of that term. I'm gonna write it down. It's going to be in my next book. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the um, the one thing that it strikes me that science yeah. fiction uh, tends to overlook, and, and 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 the self-driving car is related to this because the step, for example, the step between what we have now and the self-driving car is 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 is, is the GPS navigator, which which doesn't control the car, but it tells you what to do and where to go, and uh, and it's. I'm sure that somebody has written a murder mystery in which a GPS navigational system sends somebody off to a murder site to be massacred uh, because it's, it, it's, it's so obvious. Sure. But the intermediate steps like that are the ones that science fiction, I think, tends to overlook. Well, the, the one, if I think of a concept uh, that's become dominant in the world in the last 20 years that I don't think science fiction could have thought of at all, it's the app. You could not have explained to somebody... In nine, as as late as 1990, it would have been very difficult to explain what an app is. How does it work? How many levels of technology do you have to have to make that concept viable? Um, so what you, what you, and what, I think one of the... Did, sorry, go ahead. No, go, no, go, go ahead. I, I, yeah, I was just going to say that what, what we did back in the 80s, instead of imagining apps, were was imagining like in um, Algis Budras's Michaelmas, as it were, uh, electronic valets, i.e., computers, self-conscious right. computers that themselves did run the world in fashion that we wouldn't use to de- describe today. But uh, but that was that was a very um, prophetic um, novel, I think. Michaelmas. That was nineteen seventy-seven. I think that was a long. It was, it was yeah, it's the early. Thing. And and his valet, his self-conscious computer. Um, did everything an app would do today. It just did so with immensely more, as it were, um, intellectual excitement and cognitive explorative um, 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 turns on Budgers' part to make it plausible. No, he didn't. He did not imagine that. No, he did not. He, 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 in effect, he imagined. I can't imagine. Sorry, but a, ro- a robot which basically obtains its own apps. In other words, the robot, the the, the, the step. The, the app, it seems to me, is an intermediate step between now and something else, and most science fiction is located in that something else. So okay. that, uh, so that what Budras had, for example, was a, uh, a, a, a thing, it was an artificial intelligence uh, which basically obtained its own apps when it needed them and didn't bother to ask us. Exactly. 
except that in 1977, he couldn't describe that, and we wouldn't have quite understood it if he had, except that what he did was create a model that actually, in effect, works more or less the same. And, of course, it's an awful lot more fun to go right back and read Michaelmas about being the rule of the world through your AI than it is to actually operate a whole bunch of apps which are incomprehensible and which steal your right, exactly. bodily fluids and turn with it food. Never mind. Well, fungibles are food. Well, well, it certainly sounds like we've sketched out a version of science fiction that we're happy to read in the future, even if we're not convinced about the future itself. And, and even if it has to be read to us by our apps, making sure that we don't get overexcited. Um, just a very passing thing I think we're probably reaching in the end here is that um, the thinking of the GPS and it is a science fictional thing initially to realize, except it's not science fictional at all, that the use of the GPS is not only a form of mind control that's involved, it's been demonstrated mm. very, very clearly that use of the app, that particular app, the GPS, has a physiological, neurological effect on the brain itself. The hippocampus really? shrinks. The hippocampus, which London cab drivers have a great, great huge version of, actually shrinks. It is not being used. That kind of entroceptive balancing of the of the person in the context of the world he or she is moving through, working out the lines, the geometries, that is passive. Because when you're doing a GPS, you're not you're not mapping, you're reading. No. You're doing something no, entirely or, or simply following direction. Mm -hmm. Are we losing sound? Or you're interested. And it, it, it's 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 the prosthesis which becomes something that eventually uh, you're dependent on. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was I had these just a couple of years ago of trying to explain to one of my grandchildren how to read a map. And the idea of a paper map was absolutely almost astonishing to this kid mm -hmm. because he thought maps were things existed only in fantasy novels. Right, right. And, um, and you know how accurate they are about where the gas station is. Yeah, so um, never mind us an actual street directory. Oh, yeah. So that we, we cannot we cannot progressively and increasingly inhabit a world which is, I think the phrase is trillion fold um, 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 vocalies. I think we cannot inhabit that kind of world without neurological consequence. And that's okay. That, what, what are we going to do about it? We can't all um, be, become survivalists with our own private apps, with our own private GPSs, where we are, we are surrounded and consequentially surrounded by the world we've created already. I keep on talking, and we mm -hmm. keep on talking as though there's going to be a world, but I think let's just assume it for the moment. There's no reason not to. I think we're going to get out of this somehow, some of us. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the, 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 we're 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 concerned about things in, in 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 apocalyptic ways, but I think the concern now is not what it was again, sixty or seventy years ago. The the, the concern of when you say, "Will we have a world uh, with the shadow of nuclear annihilation hanging over us?" was a literal question. Will there be a world a week from Tuesday, or will it be a smoking cinder? Now we're thinking in longer terms. This the 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 world may. Deteriorate, but it's not going to simply burn up in one day. No, no, it takes a couple of weeks at least. Yep, you're right. Yeah, okay. So okay, <laughs> we're safe for that long. Yeah, the, the, I think that's a fascinating difference of, of opinion because I didn't live through, in many ways, the core nuclear Cold War period. I was alive for it, but I was very young. But when I look now, I think, in some ways, the the fear of a sudden flashpoint sterilizing death or whatever through nuclear annihilation seems less existentially terrifying than what's happening in the this time of climate change where there's this thing. It's like the nuclear warheads have already been set off. We're just watching it play out in very slow motion. Yeah. That's what, what the now feels like. Yeah. It, this, that, you know, I, think that, I think that feeling you, you, you represent is very, very close to what a lot of us, older folk among us, um, actually do feel um you know there's 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 yeah. nuclear disaster fatigue which began to take over a very long long time ago there are only so many times a specific melodramatic sudden um termination of the planet 
can be anticipated and escaped without without you getting kind of used to it. Because actually, the risks of some kind of nuclear um, catastrophe are not that significantly lessened at this very moment, mm. as you know. But we we just we just have our attention does not shape around that. You, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and of course that means science fiction struggles, but. Anyway, we should probably wind up. We've been you know, holding your time for long enough. Uh, it's wonderful to actually get in 10 seconds. I can tell you that exactly. I'm, I'm plugged in here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, personally, I'd like to say, John, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. It's been a genuine pleasure. It has been a pleasure all around, and it's such a great feeling to talk to other human beings on the planet, even if you're way in the wrong place. <laughs> and, 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 and in wildly variant time zones, for that matter. Absolutely. Indeed. Absolutely. But yeah. again, thank you. And this has been the Coot Street Podcast.